大家晚上好，这里是正在为您演讲的。This is Merrick's Experts, a podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello and welcome. I'm Ruth Kirchner. China is entering the year of the monkey, but in some quarters the mood is a little subdued. Economic growth is at its lowest for 25 years, and the global financial markets are getting a little nervous about China's management of its stock markets. At the same time, the leadership in Beijing is trying to reassure people in China and abroad that all is going according to plan. So, what's really going on? To discuss this, I'm joined by Scott Kennedy of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, where he is the director of the project on Chinese business and political economy. Scott Kennedy, how concerned are you about recent developments, be it slower growth or stock market turbulences? I'm quite worried, and even though it's、uh, we're coming upon the year of the monkey, it might end up being the year of the bear.、Um, Concerned about the stock market, not because the stock market is really important to China's economy. It's only about three percent of total financial assets. But I'm concerned about it because the way the government has managed the challenges with the stock market say a lot about the governance of the economy in general, and their willingness to intervene in the stock market, both to push it up in 2014 and last year, and to stem the decline of the stock market. Last year and and still this year、uh, suggests that it, it's the government that、uh, decides、uh, the distribution of economic resources, not the market. Does that mean that、uh, China or the Chinese leadership has sort of lost its magic touch?、Uh, because there was this notion, wasn't there,、uh, for many years that uh, uh, the Chinese leadership, despite being communist,、um, at least understood the economy and knew how to manage it. That's a terrific question. I don't think we want to. Go as far as some and said that the Chinese have a golden touch and always got economic management right. They certainly made plenty of mistakes over the past thirty-five plus years, but they also got a lot right. But China's got a record of thirty-six years of the fastest growth ever for the longest period of time of any country in history, and what they're doing right now really runs in the face of that record. That record gives them the benefit of the doubt. For many who believe that these are folks who are understand the long game, know that they need to get over this short-term financial volatility to implement long-term plans. But there's others who believe, I happen to be among them, that they're being relatively short-sighted,、uh, and that they believe that they need to preserve economic stability, but they're willing to sacrifice policy stability. And the growth in the gap between the Chinese self-perception of the government and the party of what they're doing, and the perception from those on the outside has never been wider, and it's that that difference in perceptions is is really alarming. Uh, but uh, when it comes to decision making on the economy and on the stock markets, for that matter, the Chinese policies, the policy making, the process has always been rather opaque. So, what has changed? Two things I think are, are, are different. The first is is that this current leadership's priority is not on the economy; it's on the anti-corruption campaign, on consolidating the Communist Party's authority in the system. On China's international power, as a result of of that, that means the economy and getting it right and getting it perfect is a lower priority. And for them, muddling through 
is good enough. And that's different from all previous Chinese leaders going back to Deng Xiaoping, where the economy, economic success was priority number one. So that's the first thing. The second is that they feel that China's economic growth model and the role of the government intervening in the economy has some problems, but it's good enough and it's important that the government and the Communist Party continue to be involved in the economy at a very detailed level, including uh, continuing to support state-owned enterprises because that's the lifeblood of, of the party. So it's not that special interests are getting in the way of economic reform. It's really the leadership's view of things. The last thing that's important is the centralization of the decision-making process has changed quite a bit. Under previous Chinese leaders, there was extensive consultation across bureaucracies, central and local, on many different policies that enabled them to hear bad news early, also to get feedback from policies that implemented when they ran into problems. The centralization of authority under Xi Jinping uh, has limits the, the consultation process, limits the feedback into the system when things don't go well. And so that news doesn't get to Xi Jinping's ears as easily as it did to previous leaders. And so that makes adjusting, changing, fixing policies that much harder. This is Merrick's Experts. With me is Scott Kennedy of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. We're discussing China's economic policies and the pace of reform. Now, there's another chance coming up to move forward, the 13th five-year plan that is going to be approved in March. How confident are you that the new five-year plan is going to lead to more change or more ambitious reforms? I think the five-year plan, as it's being drafted, uh, is an excellent opportunity for the Chinese to do a complete self-evaluation of where they've come, what their problems are, and what they need to do to, to move ahead. It's not public yet. It won't be until mid-March, as you said. And as a result, it's hard to judge something that you haven't been able to see. We've been able to take a little bit of a look at what it's likely to say because the Chinese issued a summary of it, a proposal, in late October. And just by talking to Chinese officials and others who are part of the drafting process, you can get a sense of where they're going. From what I can tell, it looks like it's not going to fully achieve uh, what their goals are. That, yes, they recognize that they face significant problems with innovation, with uh, environmental pollution, with China's relationship with the rest of the world. But the policies that are likely to be part of the plan seem incrementalist at best. They are minor improvements on existing policies. Some things will be innovative, but also balanced against efforts to make sure that things don't change too quickly. And I don't think that incrementalism is good enough to fix the problems fast enough. Chinese always counsel us on patience. You're too impatient, they tell foreigners. But some of the problems that China faces in the financial sector that we already mentioned, uh, some of the issues about innovation and productivity, these are really serious problems that need to be addressed relatively rapidly. If China doesn't become more productive and innovative soon and doesn't improve its regulatory environment, a lot of foreign investment in China, for example, is going to go elsewhere. A lot of other countries that are moving up the value-added chain will take away investment from China. And that would put China 
on the path of going down a cul-de-sac of the global economy. That is a dead-end road where, yes, China's a big economy, but essentially it becomes India or Brazil, where it's not at the center of things like it is right now. And so it, it, it's in danger of stealing defeat from the jaws of victory if it doesn't figure out how to fix some of these problems. And uh, from your perspective, what does China need to do to become more innovative? Someone who was a professor for 14 years and now works in a think tank isn't necessarily the font of wisdom on innovation. But in, in my mind, some of the things that the Chinese could, could do uh, would involve essentially liberalizing their economy. For example, in services, China's financial system is not open to private and foreign companies the way it needs to be. Healthcare, education logistics. Improvements in those services would do wonders for the economy as a whole, not just for those specific areas. You can also reform China's household registration system and allow people to move wherever they need, where they can find jobs and get access to the social services that come from living in those places. You can raise China's retirement age. Uh, you can make sure that Chinese get a full education at least through the 12th grade, through high school. Uh, all of those things would raise productivity um, you can also increase social spending on social services, on healthcare, education, make housing more affordable. All of those things combined would, I think, yield a very large reform dividend for China that may not make it likely that the Chinese would grow at six or six and a half or seven percent for the next five years or, or decade. But China still has the chance to grow relatively rapidly for another decade or two if they adopt the right policies, if they adopt the wrong policies, a bunch of incrementalist half measures, then they're going to grow at a pace much slower than their potential, and there'll also be a lot of volatility. So um, if you were to draw up the five-year plan, or uh, at least give advice to Xi Jinping, opening up the economy, um, healthcare, reform, education, would that be top of your list uh, if you were in a position to give advice? If I was going to give advice on what they ought to do, I think the first thing I would do is eliminate the having an economic growth target. And instead, I would come up with a single productivity target that everyone should reach. It's fine to try and go rapidly or less rapidly, but really what's important is that there's improvements in productivity, whether that's productivity by making people smarter and more productive or making capital work more efficiently or, or land or other things, they need to raise productivity. So anything that raises productivity, I think, would be good. Productivity also, is, if you measure it correctly, which also takes into account pollution, environmental degradation, you get sort of a green productivity target. And so centered on that basic principle, then the type of things that I outlined uh, before would help that. And uh, finally, you've been analyzing China and its uh, political economy for many, many years. Um, what surprises you most um, after all these years or maybe frustrates you about China? I really wish China would develop and change in a single direction. Modernization theory tells us that countries go from being mo non-modern and traditional to being modern and successful. And China violates that rule. Now, we shouldn't necessarily believe theorists to begin with, but China is a huge place where there's a lot of variation across the country. And on any street corner that you stand on, you will see the 19th century, 20th century, and 21st century pass right before you. That's also very exciting. It also means that when you're worried about things and how terrible they are, uh, when you see reporters getting arrested, lawyers being detained, uh, when you see 
irrational decisions on the economy or Chinese adventurism abroad, you can then be suddenly surprised by meeting people in a company that is very innovative, very thoughtful, people, uh, students who love to go to bookstores and read and talk to you about politics in a way that's much more philosophical and sophisticated than I would find in maybe some of my classrooms back in the United States. So China provides both the opportunity to frustrate but also surprise on the upside. So I'm not saying China's guaranteed to uh, have their economy go into the ditch as a result of this plan. But I think unless they take it more seriously about the problems that they have and, and get a little bit bolder, uh, that the downside possibility is is higher. But again, China always has that possibility to surprise both both negatively and positively. Scott Kennedy, thanks a lot for joining me here at Merricks. That was Scott Kennedy of the Center for International and Strategic Studies in Washington. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Merricks Experts, a podcast from the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. Merricks is one of the largest international think tanks for independent policy-oriented research on contemporary China. <laughs>